Hello, everyone. This is Michael Winters from EdSurge, and you're listening to another EdSurge Extra. Of all of the people who show up at education technology conferences and confabs, none is as distinctive as Dr. Giselle Huff, the executive director of the Jacqueline Hume Foundation here in San Francisco. Dr. Huff, or Giselle, as most people call her, is petite, she is perfectly coiffed, and she is absolutely fearless when it comes to calling for education reform for students. She worked in business and then earned a PhD in political science from Columbia. Then she taught in San Francisco area schools and worked in school development. In 1999, she became the director of the Hume Foundation. She has been a passionate fan of Clayton Christensen and his work around disruption, particularly in education. This week, another group that Giselle helped catalyze is making its public debut. Education Reimagined is a new group convened by the Washington-based nonprofit think tank Convergence. Education Reimagined is releasing a vision paper today that describes a world that is centered around learners. Giselle played a pivotal role in shaping this vision, and she joined our very favorite CEO, Betsy Corcoran, in the EdSurge studio to talk about her life, which began in Nazi-occupied France, how the Bronx shaped her view of the world, and what this new vision of education is all about. And I uh, just want to warn you quickly, you're going to hear some uh, some strange thumping noises from time to time in this interview. That's, uh, that's just Giselle pounding her fist into our EdSurge studio to reinforce her points. Uh, she is nothing if not passionate. All right, I know you're going to enjoy this interview. Here we go. So hello, this is Betsy Corcoran, CEO of EdSurge, and we're here on another EdSurge Extra. And I'm very excited because today I have as my guest one of the people who I am most intrigued by and sometimes most challenged by in the EdTech world, and that is Giselle Huff. And Giselle is currently the executive director of the Jacqueline Hume Foundation and really is a revolutionary. When I think of Giselle, I immediately think of all the conferences I've been to and how Giselle always stakes out the front row seat. And before the speaker has finished and starts to say, is there a question, Giselle is up on her feet with her hand in the air and asks a really challenging question. So Giselle, I'm happy to have you here today. And I'm very excited to hopefully get to ask you a couple of challenging questions back. We'll start with an easy one, though. Tell us. Share with us a little bit of how you got here. What what makes you care so much about kids in education? So thank you for having me, Betsy. It's great to be here. Um, I'm an immigrant. Uh, I came to this country as a child, right after the Second World War. My family was uh, killed in the Holocaust. And my mother and I came here, didn't speak a word of English. We had $400 to our name. Um, I had been well-educated in France. Um, I was 11 years old and I entered the uh, sixth grade in the South Bronx where we settled as uh, joining three family members. So there were five of us in a one bedroom apartment in the South Bronx, which was pretty bad even then. <laughs> I, was the only, I was the only white girl and one of three white kids in um, the school that I attended. Of course, I, it was like 
the snake pit. If I had seen 10 black people in France before I come, it was a lot because we didn't, there was not a, a, a big population of black people in France. Right. So it was quite a shock. Um, and it, what was even more shocking was this is 1947 in a, the most progressive city in America. New York City. New York City. And in the sixth grade, those kids weren't learning anything. Wow. They were not learning anything. And that was even a bigger shock for me. Right. And it was something that stuck in my mind that they were being shortchanged as long ago as that, 1947. Wow, and some things haven't really changed. And many things haven't really changed. Right, so we're gonna jump ahead. So from the time you came to the United States, as you said, in the South Bronx, uh, you then went on to have a full career. Yes. You've actually run for office. Yes. Uh, and you came to run the the Hume Foundation as executive director. And when you came into that position, did you come in knowing that education was really where you were going yes. to focus? Yes. As a matter of fact, it's a very small family foundation. I'm the only staff member. Uh, there were four trustees since then. Mrs. Hume passed away, so now there are three. Uh, and we spent a day trying to focus our efforts, and we all decided it would be education, which fit right in with my fort, right? right? So that was fine with me. But then you also met Clayton Christensen, and uh, that yes. changed your Totally. So, so at the beginning, we did, um, when I first started working for the Human Foundation, we were wanting to challenge the establishment. We thought the establishment was moribund and had to be exploded. And so we were doing school choice. But school choice is unbelievable, mathematically frustrating. And what year was this, school choice? I started in 1998, okay. so uh, at the end of the year. So up until 2005, we were doing school choice. That's around the time that the Gates Foundation was just beginning to get going. Right. We were we were doing so school choice, all of the things that you know, all in the policy world, mm -hmm. not in any you know, not uh, not supporting programs or that sort of thing. Okay, just so in the policy. You're world. lobbying. You're talking. Lo to well, Congress. not lobbying. Uh, uh -huh. We're educating. <laughs> we're educating. We're not educating. lobbying. Yes. Um, and then we um, um, in 2005 I attended a conference at of the Education Commission of the States where. Clayton Christensen was the um, the keynote speaker, and he uh, wanted to spend some time with uh, leaders in the education space before he made a speech to throw some ideas at them and see what their reaction was. Because he's a business person, he's not he didn't know anything about education per mm -hmm. se. So he's the disruptive innovation person, right? Okay. So I was part of a group of 14 people that actually spent time with him and he explained about disruptive innovation and I had read the, the innovator's dilemma beforehand. We were required to do that before we met with him. And it was like a light bulb came on. You know, I thought, this is it. I mean, technology is going to be the saving grace. That is what's going to make the transformation of learning possible. Because we have been doing the same thing since our Nation at Risk was published in 1983 for 30 years, well, not then, but now 33 years, and we have not moved one iota. We keep doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. But I have to ask, one question here, which is, isn't there a risk that, that that approach makes technology sound like a silver bullet? 
You're too smart to think that there's oh, silver yes. bullets. Oh, yes. It's not technology per se that is the answer. Right. It's using technology in order to transform the system, just like we've used technology to transform every other system we live in. The way we communicate with each other, the way we get around, the way we, we find out information, all of those human interactions that we've been doing forever have drastically changed because of technology. It hasn't, it's not the technology itself, it's what it enables you to do. And as you became charged up about this, your perspective of how to do philanthropy changed. Oh, yes. So. I make a distinction between charity and philanthropy. What's the difference? Charity, I'll give you examples in the education field. Um, so there's a wonderful organization in the Bay Area called the Basic Fund. Okay. They've been around for 15 years, and what they do is provide scholarships for underserved kids to go to private schools that are much better than the schools they're assigned to. So over that period of time, 15 years, they've helped 19,000 kids. That's fantastic. They've actually changed the lives, ostensibly, I mean, potentially changed the lives of 19,000 kids. During that same period of time, between 40 million and 50 million kids each year in America went to school. So when you help one person like that, that's charity. You're not changing the world. In order to change the world, you have to have a theory of change, and then you have to apply it wisely. So that's charity. Right. Now, an example of philanthropy, and I'm going to use one that's both-sided, right, that's very immediate. The Emerson Collective just came out with a huge initiative that is, on one hand, absolutely mind-blowing. Big, hairy, audacious goal Endeavor, right. right? They're saying they're high school doesn't work. work, work Change yeah, it, right? But the their answer to it is not BHAG. It's very retail, right? They're going to create. They're going to put out an RFP and ask people to design high schools that do work, and then they're going to fund the best models. We have been doing this for 25 years. I mean, what are the, all the charter schools that have sprung up, and all of the you know the, the, the next gen schools? And I mean, everybody's doing this all over the country. But so Giselle, would you rather have uh, Emerson or someone start 10,000 high schools all at the same time? No, but five isn't going to do it. Five isn't enough. So think about this. I mean, the math is what kills you in this space. That's why reform is not possible. Reform is too slow. We haven't got the amount of time that we need for reform. Just think of the math. KIPP. KIPP started 22 years ago. Great model. Absolutely proved, hands down, that those kids can learn just like any other kids. Right. No excuse at schools. Did incredible stuff. They have 183 schools and not quite 70,000 kids, 22 years. Do the math. <laughs> Do the math. Right now we have 55,000 million kids in school. So rather than reform, you're advocating Transformation. Revolution. Transformation. Transformation, not revolution, because revolution leads you to worse things, as we saw with the Arab Spring. If you think about the, the, uh, the, the premise of the... Um, examples, you know, of models that work. That, that premise is, that's based on the premise that best practices are the, is the thing that we have to promote. So you show people how well this works and then they go ahead and do it. 
uh-uh. Those two words are the two worst words when it comes to education reform. Because you can, I remember visiting a KIPP-like school on the fifth floor of a public school in New York City about nine years ago. Where as you walked up the four floors, you could see as you looked into the corridor, you were looking at Dante's Inferno. I mean, there was a disaster going on. And then you got to Naverna, right? I mean, it was... In all the, th the three or four years I'd been there, not one person from downstairs had come up. Not one. Because that's, best practices mean that you have the answers, and it's like when you have uh, children, and you, or, or when you, you point to, to your child's friend, you say, why aren't you much more like Johnny? Forget that. I mean, your child is gonna do just the opposite. What is more important for scalability, in order to be scalable, you have to be, you have to establish a, an ecosystem like, like the concept of fishing, mm -hmm. right? Where you can teach people or make available to them the tools that they need in order to create not the answer. There's going to be two million expressions of blended learning, you know, models. Right. Fine, as long as it does uh, two things happen. That the child is the center and everything is around the child. Everything is about the child. And all the systems are built in order to make sure that every child has what that child needs. So one more question on this before we go on. If everything is around the child, if everything and we build things around the child, what happens though when we make these mistakes? The child is the one that gets hurt, right? So in other words, there's the ideal child, the, the abstract child, the child with no face. And we can say we're building everything around that child. But if we do take this approach, if we say we're learning from all of the mistakes we've made, then aren't there a lot of kids with faces who got hurt along the way? So again, you're in, a, you're, you're in a static model. I mean, you're addressing a static model, which is the model we have now. Uh, when I say that it's learner-centered, the things that are built around that in the transformed system, like competency-based learning, where the child, there is no average child. Mm -hmm. It's whatever time it takes for, however long it takes for, whatever need that child has to understand that concept. Mm -hmm. If he understands it very well, like, you know, like the, the kid who was in a, the Khan Academy and was doing calculus in fifth grade, mm -hmm. he answered 182 questions straight right in a row, you know, I mean, right. that. Fine, let him go ahead and do that. Right. But the kid who can't get past fractions, right. I mean, then you know it. You know it at every step that he can't get past fractions, and you will put every every resource to make sure that he does get past fraction. Mm -hmm. And because you, everybody else is busy as a teacher, you're now in a position to bring to bear whatever that child needs or the other three children in the class who can't get fractions in one week, right? This is gone. There is no one week. This is gone. Time, you know, is becomes the variable and it, it is not the constant. Right. So, so w w your point is well taken about the mistakes that you're talking about that could be made and harm children, but not in this context, because at no point in time are you allowing a child to be on a trajectory that is harmful to him. Even if it is one, let's say that the child is autistic or has some kind of other uh, you know, problem, you'll find that out and you will tailor you know, the learning path for that child with the help of his parents and the community 
to fit that child's requirement. So think of this as no more average children. So no more testing. Okay, no more testing. I think you get lots of enthusiastic uh, yeses to that, both from teachers, parents, and for sure kids. Yes. Um, so Giselle, uh, there is a new effort that's being announced uh, today, September 29th, called Education Reimagined. And this has been a project that you've been a part of for, I guess, more than two years? Oh, just about two years. Just about yeah. two years mm-hmm. now. and. Um, it's coming out with this idea of how do you build an ecosystem, as you were starting to talk about, how do you build an ecosystem that's really focused around the learner? Um, and what I'd love for you to share with us is, number one is, is this PR? Is this PR? Mm, well, this is a vision document. so That sounds it, like PR to me. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's like a North Star. Right? Okay. It's, it's, not, it's not in the least bit prescriptive. Not at all. There's nothing in the document that prescribes anything. So tell us what the vision is, the North Star then, that this, that this effort has produced. So it, it actually has, um, it has a, and it's not unique. I mean, we, this group has come up with five elements. People have come up with seven elements. They kind of overlap. And the elements are that the elements for a, a, a to fill the purpose of education in the 21st century. The first question we asked ourselves, the 28 of us, not we asked ourselves, but the facilitators asked us, when we arrived on the you know the, the morning of the first day that we began this process, is what is the purpose of education? Okay, and, and what the did purpose, you conclude? We concluded that it is to make children into contributing human, human beings who can run their lives f- f- in, in a good way and, con- and participate in, in democracy and in the world and, and meet their you know, potential. And, okay. and, aim, uh, uh, and given the opportunity to develop the potential that they have in order to be contributors Great. to I the community. I don't think anybody will disagree okay. with that. So that is the purpose of education. Was that the purpose of education in the 20th century? Probably not. We there had you a go. Different model. Okay, so right there. Okay. Right, so that's the difference, right? And the five elements that we identified, and this is was done, you know, not not we didn't just call these things out. It was very well crafted and done by the, the professionals who were involved with us. So here are the five elements: competency based, right? Personalized, relevant, and contextualized, so that it lives where the kid lives, right? Learner agency, so that the kid is in charge of his own learning. Socially embodied, so it's not, it's, well, it's where the, the child is in his environment. It's not, it's not alien to him. He doesn't say, why am I doing this, you know? And open walls, doesn't have to happen in, in the walls of a school. And if it happens elsewhere, you should be able to get credit for it. Okay. It should, you know, so, so those are the five elements. Okay. So now that gives you a filter through which you can assess whether any model that you're looking at is putting any one of these or more than one of these into practice. So is the point of this to evaluate the kinds of efforts that we see going on? Or maybe let me frame the question this way. Give me one concrete result that you would hope to see in two years' time following the result of this work. 
I would hope to see many more people, whether they be districts or individual schools or charter school management, you know, organizations, or become aware of this as a thing and actually take steps because alongside of this, the other thing we've invested in the Human Foundation is the Learning Accelerator, which is creating all in the ecosystem, all of the tools you need, you should be able in two years from now with this vision, this is what I'd like to see, with this vision in front of you and your understanding that this, you must make this happen for America's children, all of them, all of them, because many children in this country are being shortchanged. We, you, you, that you have the, the, the vision, you are part of, you, you consider yourself part of a group of people who are understanding it and, and, and want to spread it, and you have all the tools you need in order to begin to make it happen. From a place like the Learning Accelerator. From the place like the Learning Accelerator. Mm -hmm. So, given that you are, as you say, a philanthropy, and an active philanthropy, you're not doing charity, are you expecting to help fund some more specific tools, or what's what's the role of your foundation over the next couple of years in making that vision a reality? So we're, we are spending down. So we're closing our doors when we run out of money, which we should be between the next three or four years. Um, so we're going to continue supporting the efforts of TLA, of the Learning Accelerator, and uh, the, the, uh, Education Reimagined. It's now in phase two and it's launching today. So, you know, this is the beginning of the second year, so to speak. We, we spent almost two years putting the, the document together. Now we're the first year of launching this idea and trying to tie it with a nice big bow so people can unpack it and be satisfied with what's inside. So we're doing that, and we're going to continue to do that. I, I'm very um, intent on. We're going to continue. We, for instance, we we support the Heckinger Report. We 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 are the you know the foundation pays for uh, the reporter who's dedicated to blended learning. We're going to continue to do that, and I'm very. Um, I'm a VC. You know, I I I get proposals about things that sound just. Perfect, and it's a one-time <laughs> thing, and I do it, and you know, and that's that. Mm -hmm. And it, it's very helpful because it builds up. So you know, in fact, it was you who told me, Betsy, when we were at the Einel Hall conference. You, we, we were together at dinner, and you told me. You, I don't remember who told you that, but there are three steps to, to making change happen. Right. Yes. The first one is you have to create the buzz. Right. The second one is you have. There has to be somebody who's doing this that you want to emulate because you respect them. Yes. And the third one is you have to make it easy enough. It can't be. It, everybody knows it's hard, but it can't be too hard. Okay. So best practices is too hard. And when you when you told me that, it totally gave me a a framework for fitting in what I was doing. Uh oh. So it's all my fault. <laughs> it's all your fault. <laughs> Because that's exactly it. The buzz, right? The emulation, which is through lessons learned, not best practices. And making it easy enough, the work of TLA. All right. On that note, Giselle, we will ask you to come back in two years <laughs> and see whether you made it easy enough and whether the vision has become 
more of a reality for kids, including those kids still in the South Bronx. You bet. Thank you, you very bet. much. My pleasure. All right. Thanks again to Giselle for stopping by and speaking with us. If you'd like to learn more about the Education Reimagined initiative, you can find a lot more information on their website, education-reimagined.org. Thanks to you very much for listening. We'll see you next time.